Uh, many of you know uh, that uh, I'm the father of four children. We have four children, and you know, one of whom is still at home. Um, but you know, that means that there was about a two-decade stretch where we saw just about every animated movie released. Um, and, and, you know, one of, one of the favorites, at least for me, one of my favorites, and I think for our family as well, was this movie Madagascar. Um, it's a movie about a group of animals living uh, a, kind of a thoroughly cushy life in the uh, Central Park Zoo in New York City. Uh, their, their meals are catered. They get daily massages. Uh, they get, you know... Their egos are regularly boosted when the crowds show up to admire, you know, the wild animals in the middle of New York City. But then, you know, as the plot goes forward through this series of unlikely circumstances, they're taken from their cushy life in Central Park, and they end up stranded on the island of Madagascar. And, and finding themselves in, in what really should be their native habitat, slowly but surely, they become what they were created to be. The wild animals they should have been all along. Now, you know, I thought about that as I, as I look at the Christmas story, and, you know, because I doubt that there is any part of the scripture that has been more caged and more coddled and domesticated and massaged into our consciousness in this culture than the Christmas story. You know, you. So much so that were you to take, you know, kind of the popular conception of Christmas and, and juxtapose it to the biblical account, you know, you, you might end up with something that looked like completely different stories. And there may be no aspect of the Christmas story, I think, more misunderstood than this one having to do with the wise men. So, so I just want to spend a few minutes this Christmas morning considering this story in its natural habitat, uh, in the scriptures, in the wilds of the scriptures. Uh, and I want to do that considering three things. One, being on the outside. Secondly, being needful of a guide. And thirdly and finally, being satisfied. In Matthew's account, the, fr in, in Matthew's account, the first people we hear about after Jesus' birth are these wise men. Uh, we're not told, actually, how many wise men there were, um, you know, or anything yet about the gifts they bring. The first thing we learn about them is where they're from. Uh, we're, we're told they're from the East. Now, many of you know that, that I came here from Texas, and you may also know that uh, part of my story is I lived a lot of years back East. And, and I can tell you from personal, you know, and somewhat bitter experience that to even admit that I lived back east, much less enjoyed living back east, you know, rarely went over well in, you know, my very own Republic of Texas. And, and there's something of a sense of that in this story, too. You know, when we discover, uh, when we're told that these uh, wise men are from the east, you know, before we know anything else about them, we know that they were outsiders, thoroughly not part of God's people. But, but it, it goes even beyond that. To say that they came from the East is to say more than they were just from another place. It is to say that they were exotic. Uh, they're probably from Persia or Babylon, somewhere in the region of present-day Iran or Iraq. But they're, they're outsiders in another way. 
and maybe in an even more important way, uh, I want to say a more troubling way. Our text calls them wise men. We're used to that term, but we're also used to another term we use sometimes, magi. Um, uh, magi is a term, a designation that pretty much everywhere else is translated as something like magician. Uh, and, and not, you know, birthday party, balloon animal, pull a rabbit out of the hat, magician. Uh, we're talking something more like practitioners of the dark arts, sorcerers. And, and we know something of their particular brand of sorcery when we find out their obsession with the skies. Uh, they saw his star. Now, you know, today we make a distinction between astronomy and astrology. Um, you know, one uh, being a respectable science with respectable scientists employed in university departments and observatories and national labs. Uh, the other, you know, being practiced in strip malls uh, next to cannabis dispensaries on late night TV, you know, um, on the back page of the tabloids. But in the ancient world, no such distinction existed. Uh, people like the Magi believed that there was a mystical and magical relationship between the move, movement of heavenly bodies and human beings. And, and they looked to the stars to discern these movements uh, for wisdom and guidance and truth. So for the first readers of this gospel, Matthew's Jewish audience, you know, uh, a people who looked to the scriptures and not the stars for wisdom and guidance, this idea that these people would be the first to come and see Jesus would have been, you know, offensive. Maybe deeply so. They wouldn't have considered these men as being wise at all. Uh, not only ethnic and religious outsiders, but moral outsiders as well with values and mores. Not just different from God's people, but utterly opposed to them. And yet, despite the depth of their outsiderness, there's something deeply important about these wise men. They are guided. They're being guided. We're never told exactly how, but their stargazing leads them to Jerusalem, but not Jesus. Not yet, anyway. There, 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 there is the truth that all of creation testifies to its maker, but it will only get you so far. You know, as much as we see God's glory walking around the beauty of Santa Fe, looking at the Sangres, as much as it tells us about the existence of God, His artistry, His power, His might, uh, His intentionality, it, it, it's not enough to get you to Jesus. Creation alone wasn't enough for the Magi either. The star guides them to Jerusalem, and it's once they get there that they go from looking to the stars to looking to the Scriptures. They meet a troubled King Herod, much to say about that, but, but he gets the chief priests and the scribes, and what do they do? When, when the inquiry comes, where is this Christ child, they open the scriptures. And you find out, we, 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 we actually know exactly what scripture they open to, and exactly what book, exactly what verse. They look to Micah 5.2, and it's from that text that they're guided to where the Christ child is to be born in Bethlehem. And right after the scriptures reveal the place of Jesus, something interesting happens. The star reappears. 
so what started as what seemed to be a story of magi looking to the stars, you know, their object of, of sorcery or superstition for guidance, we find out in reality that what they have been gazing into this whole time is God's sky. That, that, that they were being guided by him well before they became aware of that fact. Now, you know, someone once said that the tricky thing about life is that it can only be lived forward, but it can only be understood backward. And, and, and it may be that, that you look at this story and you recognize something of your own story in it, that, that you can look back at times in your life when, you know, where you could say that was foolishness and that was failures and that was all superstition or something else, and, and you can see at the same time looking back, God was guiding you, guiding you to himself. You can say, you know, in all of that, he wasn't absent. You know, he, he used it all to direct you to himself. In, in fact, that ought to get us thinking about the meaning, you know, of our present circumstances, right? Uh, that, that they might not be as self-directed as we imagine. They might not be as chaotic as we imagine. So the star, you know, doesn't save the Magi. It doesn't even provide them all the information they need to know about Jesus, but the Lord uses it. He uses it to get them going, moving to the place where they're able to get to the clarity of his word and then to Jesus. So they do make their way to Bethlehem, and when they get to him, we're told they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Um, I'm a Presbyterian. We like to keep things dignified. Um, this is a charismatic moment in the Bible. Uh, I think shouts went up. I think hands were raised. Perhaps some singing. Perhaps a little dancing. And yet, you know, all of them, you know, what, what can be said, we're not told exactly what they do, but we do know this. All of them to a man came to experience something of a deep and profound and satisfying joy. Satisfying. Outward expression but also joy treasured inwardly. And theirs was an experience of joy in which expectations are not only fulfilled, but actually exceeded. And there, there's something else to notice, you know, that's important about this encounter. This is the first place in the Bible that marks an encounter with Jesus and the world. People from outside of Israel, far outside of Israel, uh, the first to come into contact with the Savior, to meet their Savior, Jesus Christ, so, so that when they go into the house and see the child with Mary, his mother, they fell down and they worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. If you've ever wondered, you know, why we do what we do on Christmas in giving gifts, you know, our tradition of Christmas gift giving really comes from here. And the order of events, I think, is critical to notice. That is to say that even before gifts are given, something else is given, worship. There's no halos. There's no radiating light. There's no angelic pronouncements. There's no cattle lowing, far as we know. Just a child in a feed trough there with Mary, his mother, and Jesus gets all the worship. They walked in, saw Mary and Jesus, and they worshiped him. That's the first gift, Jesus given to us. 
And the response is worship. Giving all of you, all of who you are, all of you to the God who refused to keep his distance, but gives all of himself to us so that they see the Christ child is the great gift and respond with gifts fitting for a king, frankincense, gold, and myrrh. And with that, these far-off, wandering, stargazing outsiders come to the end of their quest, and the end of their quest is satisfaction. In the presence of their newfound Savior and sovereign God, their gracious, star-ruling king, God with us, stars cradle. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God is the greatest and the first gift giver who loves a wandering, grasping, and lost humanity so much so that he gave his only son not to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And that is good news. Good news for Christians to always return to and receive again and again. Jesus literally is the gift that keeps on giving. Looking back and seeing God's flawless faithfulness in our lives, glorying in his unhinged generosity, his lavish grace, and giving us the gift of his son Jesus. And it's good news for the whole world. Good news for grasping, grifting, doubting, skeptical, exhausted, wounding, wandering outsiders of every kind. And so the question, you know, is where are you headed? What's guiding you? What gift are you trying to procure? What is it costing you to try to get that gift? And, you know, only you can answer those questions. I, I don't know all of you here or your stories, but I do know this. The Lord brought you here this morning. And I know this as well, that, that our God not only guides, but he gives. He not only saves, but he satisfies. Someone summed up the Christmas story uh, in, in just this short sentence. God does not will to be God without us. God does not will to be God without us. You know, in the end, there really are no stories of how people get to Jesus. The gospel is always the story of Jesus getting to his people. No matter how far away you may happen to be so that we would be reconciled to the God who made us for himself through faith in Jesus. The Savior given to live the sinless, fully pleasing life before a holy God that we could never live. The, the Savior given to die the sinner's death, we should have died taking upon himself the full measure of God's wrath for sin that should have fallen upon you and upon me. And the Savior risen, even now guiding you to himself, giving himself fully so that through faith in him, we would be relieved of the crushing burden of trying to make a life for ourselves. For God so loved the world. He's the gift. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Lord, I pray that with whatever we give or whatever it is we receive, that we would not lose sight, that we are all recipients of a boundless grace in Jesus. 
that Jesus, you are the gift. And I pray that, that a greater, deeper apprehension of that gift would move us to worship you, to give our lives to you, to seek to glorify you and enjoy you forever and ever, knowing that that's not a loss for us, but it's always gain. And that, Lord, that the joy of that, the gratitude of that would sink so deeply as to flow out from us to bring blessing to those both near and far. Thank you for calling us here this morning. Lord, would you attend to us as we come to this table? What a picture. We don't come here bringing our offerings, making our resolutions. Um, We don't come with anything but need. And you delight in that. You feed us here. You don't make demands, but as we come to this table, you remind us that demands have been met fully. So Lord, um, would you help us as we come here to come and eat and drink so that not only, so that, being in, so that in being reminded that just as we need food and drink to live and to be satisfied, uh, Lord, you um, have given us life and you are our satisfaction. So attend to us here, Lord, for the glory of your name, for the good of your people, for the good of Santa Fe and the world. In Jesus' name, amen.